Well, good morning and welcome. As we look this morning through Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 9 through 20, uh, we want to again emphasize the fact that Nehemiah is a book about leadership. We noted from chapter 1 that leaders pray. We noted from last week's study that while leaders pray, they also plan. And what we want to look at this week is that in this, in this prayer and planning, it stems and flows from the man of God who has a vision to accomplish God's glory and the restoration of God's people. So this morning, let me begin by reading God's inspired, inerrant, infallible word from the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I saw, I rose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went to the fountain gate, to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. And then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the good hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. This is the word of God. So this morning as we unfold our text, I want to give you kind of an outline for those of you who uh, take notes. We see first God's abundant grace, verses 9 and 10. The leader's preparation, verses 11 through 16. The leader's vision, verses 17 and 18. And finally, the leader's confidence, verses 19 through 20. Imagine with me, if you will, that you are a home builder. You have a desire to build a high-quality home. You're known as a person who is called by the name of Christ, and you've built a reputation for craftsmanship and integrity. Where does the builder begin? Before a form is set, before a nail is driven, before a blueprint is developed, 
What does the builder have in mind that will carry him throughout the project? The builder has a vision for what the house will look like. See, the builder has vision. The builder begins with the end in mind. The builder sees more than the framers. The builder sees more and beyond the plumbers. The builder sees more than the electricians that he hires. You see, he sees the end. The builder begins with the end in mind. They see possibilities before anyone else sees them. They see possibilities when others see obstructions. Leaders are focused. They are focused on the destination even as they navigate the details of the journey. They never lose sight of the end. Now, Nehemiah, he was moved by the Spirit of God to have concern for the same things God was concerned with, namely God's glory and God's people, God's name and those named as God's possession. When Nehemiah saw the condition of God's people and the shame upon God's name and the destroyed wall, when he heard of this, he wept. And he prayed day and night for four months that he might find favor with the king and he might return to build the walls of Jerusalem and restore reverence for God's name and thus reverse the shame of God's people. With the end in mind and dependence upon God to act, Nehemiah envisions what the building of the wall will look like. As we saw from last week's text in chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, Nehemiah had calculated the time that was needed. He had calculated the materials, who the suppliers of those materials would be. He had calculated who the obstacles uh, would be to, to the building of this wall. While he prayed, he planned. While he planned, he remained steadfast in his focus on the end, on the building of the wall, on the result. And the king granted Nehemiah what he had asked, because the good hand of his God was upon him. You see, when we think about any endeavor that we might embark on, we are dependent upon God's grace and God's mercy. We are to be diligent like Nehemiah was to pray. We are to be diligent like Nehemiah and plan. But our ultimate need is the same as what Nehemiah's need was. Nehemiah needed God's grace. And grace, as we define it biblically, is God's unmerited, undeserved, unearned personal favor. God grants us what we ask because it is in His will and His pleasure to do so. God's grace for Nehemiah had exceeded his expectations. Armed with God's grace, Nehemiah continued to prepare to build the walls of Jerusalem. Further armed with sufficient information, Nehemiah cast his vision to the leaders in Jerusalem and the people, confident in Nehemiah's God, confident that Nehemiah had a God-ordained vision, and confident in God's abundant grace, the people embrace the work that is to come. Let us look more closely at verses 9 and 10. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of Jerusalem. You see, God's good hand of grace was upon Nehemiah. Above and beyond all that he had asked, Nehemiah petitioned God for favor from the king for time to build. He petitioned the king for safe passage through enemy territory. He petitioned the king for provision for the material needed for the work. 
But not only did God give him graciously all that he had asked for, but he sent with him military leadership and soldiers to do battle for him. Because you see, Nehemiah's prayers aligned his will with God's will. What God's will was became what Nehemiah's will was. God had made him willing. You see, prayer doesn't change the mind of God or cause him to decide based on some new information that we provide in our communication to him. Often we pray things like, you know, if God, if he just knew my situation, if he knew all that I was dealing with, surely he would hear my prayer and change my situation based on this new information, stuff that he doesn't know. But if he only knew, that's why I pray. To give him this new information that he might change his mind and that he might decide to do something in my favor. You see, what prayer really does is doesn't change the mind of God. Prayer changes the prayer. You see, and the diligent leader, he seeks the will of God through prayer and he is rewarded with this, with a will that is aligned with the will of God and with the purposes of God. Now, the prayer prays in faith, trusting that God's will is greater and that God will align my will with His. And He does so by faith. Like Hebrews 11.6 says, that, And without faith, it is impossible to please Him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and He rewards those who seek Him. Our first and greatest reward that we receive in prayer with God is our will has changed. That God has made us willing to line up with His will. Nehemiah sought God because God had first chosen him. They understand this, that unless God acts upon the human heart, there's no such thing as a seeker of God. You might have heard of the seeker-friendly church. Well, those churches who say that they are seeker-friendly, well, people, those people come often just to seek what they might get from God. They seek the benefits of His benevolence and His kindness. But without a rebirth, they do not receive the reward of a willingness to serve Him. You see, Romans 3.10 and 11 are true. None of us is righteous. No, not one. No one understands no one seeks for God. They might seek God for His favor, but they don't seek Him. And that's what God wants, is us to seek Him in prayer. To seek His will. That we might be converted from our will to His will. You see, the converted man, the converted woman, seeks God not for His benefits, but seeks that God's will be done. Seeks to align their own will with His will. Now, if you're here this morning, or you're listening online, and you're not in Christ this morning, God knows your friend. He knows this. He knows that you will not seek Him of your own volition. And therefore, God sent His Son. He sent God Himself in the flesh to seek that which was lost. God is the seeker of men. God is the one who seeks those who would worship Him in spirit and in truth. God seeks those to make them willing to serve Him. He went to the cross and He bore the shame and humiliation for your sin. He bore the shame and humiliation for your defiance and your denial of God. He went to the cross that He might bear your sin, knowing the cost of your sin. 
on the night before he was betrayed. Jesus, he knew the cost of your sin. He knew the punishment that you deserve. He knew that your unwillingness to seek him, that because of that, he knew that the wrath of God would be poured out upon him. And so in Luke 22, verse 42, he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours will be done. And as he hung upon the cross, bearing your sin and shame, he uttered these words in Luke 23. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Today, if you will turn from the sin of unbelief and turn in faith to Jesus Christ by grace, he will make you willing to seek him. And God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. We need to be willing to seek God. Because we are dead in our trespasses. And in Christ Jesus, He makes us alive. And that He gives us then our His Holy Spirit that we might be willing to do all that pleases Him to His praise and to His glory. The first reward of the born-again believer is he is willing to seek God. When Nehemiah diligently sought the will of God by faith, and the good hand was upon Nehemiah, and God rewarded him not only with a willingness to line up his will with him, but he, as Ephesians 3.20 says, God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. To me, in Nehemiah's petition for time, to Nehemiah's petition for safe passage, to Nehemiah's petition for the materials that it would take to build the wall, God added material leaders and soldiers for the battle that was ahead, which is far above what he had even asked. Now we look at the leader's preparation in verses 11 through 16. So I went to Jerusalem, and I was there three days. Then I rose in the night, I and a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I expect, inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall and turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. See, leaders are gatherers of information. Nehemiah had a vision to build the wall, and basically he knew what it was that was needed to build it. He knew that he needed time, he needed materials, and he needed safe passage. But to further cast the vision, it warranted first-hand information and inspection. We should note that Nehemiah gathers information, but that his lack of information didn't paralyze his decision-making. You see, Nehemiah was decisive. Remember that he prayed, and that as he prayed and when he first sought out, uh, he first sought out information about what was going on in Jerusalem, what was going on with his people, and he finds out that the wall has been torn down and that the gates had been burned. He has a vision for what it would need 
to repair it. See, based only on the fact that these walls were burned and torn down, he developed a vision for its repair. All leaders know that they will not exhaustively have all the information that they might need, but they do not let that paralyze them to inactivity. Nehemiah's vision began with a concept. The walls are destroyed, and the people are put to shame. So Nehemiah plans and prays that God will give him favor with their king, that he might rebuild Jerusalem. So here, in this part of the text, Nehemiah rides out by night to inspect the walls, and he gathers information. He needs to know just how big this undertaking might be. You see, most leaders, good managers, they first go out and inspect what they expect. That is, before they give charge to people to do the work, they inspect the work that needs to be done. So they inspect what then they will expect. The most conservative estimates here of this wall is that it was two and a half miles in circumference. And the stones that needed to be unearthed, they were massive. So this was not Nehemiah talking about building a fence to go around a garden. This was like a massively daunting task. But Nehemiah did not cast this vision in haste. You see, he spent three days surveying the scene, gathering information before he communicated that vision before he communicated the expectations. He also identified who would, to be, who would need to be let in on this new found information. Who would be the first that needed to know? He identified the key players. You see, the key players were the faithful Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials. You know, in the church, we often need to identify who the key players are, right? And we identify them and call them deacons, those who are identified by their commitment to the work, those who are committed to the work and they have an attitude of servanthood. The church calls deacons to the task of service based on their known character and their faithfulness, as well as their previously demonstrated service. Elders in the church should be so named based on the same items as well. But they should also be those who demonstrate a desire to shepherd the flock of God in His Word. I have noticed that there are kind of three kinds of people in the church today. One kind sees a need and says, I will help. I can help. I will help. Another kind sees a need and says, it looks like this church needs some help. Somebody needs to do that. And then there's a third kind that is so inconsistent that they're really of no help at all. I can help. Is that you? Someone needs to do it. Is that you? Are you the third kind that you're so inconsistently around that nobody can depend on you? You see, I had a guy who came to the church once and he told me that he could transform the church, that he had these talents and abilities as a youth leader, that he would make the youth group grow exponentially, and that he would transform the way that we did worship because he had so much talent. And I said to him, can you plunge a toilet? I don't want to know what you can do and what you know and how capable you are. Can you serve? Are you a servant of the Lord? Do you see a need and fill it? Are you the kind who says, somebody else needs to do that? I see that it needs to be done. Somebody should certainly plunge the toilet. 
Or are you helpful when you're there, but you're so rarely there that nobody can depend on you and count on you uh, to help consistently? So then you render yourself not really very helpful at all. So I ask you this this morning. Which one are you? Let us look further at Nehemiah's vision. Then I said to them, You see the trouble that we're in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words of the king that he had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Nehemiah, having gathered the key people needed to do the work, now cast the vision. Nehemiah was a visionary and a decisive leader. He motivated the people to take on and engage in a monumental task. Now, you know, most leaders and most employers, uh, they usually try to motivate people with external rewards. That is, in our workplace, it kind of looks like this. If I pay them more money, I give them more vacation days, maybe I give them less hours, or I give them a cleaner and nicer break room, uh, they will then produce what it is that I, as the leader, am asking of them. Well, research shows that this is the least effective motivator towards worker productivity. What they needed was vision. What they needed was a purpose that they could wrap their head and their heart around and engage in. Now, Nehemiah's vision, it was simple, wasn't it? Do you see the trouble that we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned. Come, let us build the walls of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Church, do you see the trouble that we're in? Do you see that the church has appropriated the culture that we have taken the culture that is outside of the church and made it part of the church, that you can see almost no difference between how people live and behave in the world, and now we do so in the church, when we know that the gospel is actually counter to that culture? Do you see that we have become consumers of worship instead of contributors to the worship of God? Do you see that we have neglected the Great Commission to make disciples, that we have neglected to make a personal commitment to holiness, that we have neglected to invest in the lives and the holiness of our brothers and sisters? Do you see that we have neglected the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations? Do you see that we have neglected to proclaim the gospel at work, in our neighborhoods, and in our church gatherings? Nehemiah motivates the people to implement his vision simply by saying, let us build the wall so that we will no longer be put to shame among the nations. He offered only the satisfaction of a job well done. Winston Churchill, during the war, said, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. What is our aim? Victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. For without victory... There is no survival. You see, Nehemiah then tells them of God's hand upon him in the recent past and declares his dependence upon God's good hand for future success. And they reply, Let us rise up and build. They join the work, motivated 
by the worth of the task. Let us see what the leader is confident in and what he uh, implores and exhorts uh, the others to place their confidence in as they share his confidence and they share his vision as they have been motivated by the worthiness of the task ahead. Verse 19. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and they despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. You see, in the worthiness of the task of building the walls of Jerusalem and the restoration and reverence for God's name and the reversing of the shame of God's people, they are certainly met with resistance from the outside. And you know this, that if we are motivated to do God's will and to be faithful in Him, that the resistance is there. The resistance is present. And the accusation that the detractors make is the same one that they made of old that we saw uh, last week when we briefly looked at Ezra chapter 4, that these Jews, they say, are in opposition to the king and they're just an evil people. So why would the king give them permission to build this wall? These are an evil people and they are opposed to the king. God's leaders are confident in God and confident that his purposes for his people will be accomplished. Nehemiah tells his distractors basically this. This is God's work. These are God's people. This is God's city. And none of God's plans for God's people will be thwarted. You see, our opponents are everywhere. And we live among a people that abhor any absolutes. Nevertheless, we proclaim that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And we are confident in God's vision for the church. Listen to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, verses 15 through 18. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Nothing will thwart the plan of God for His church. The gates of hell, the opposition, nothing will prevent God's will from being done in the church. We can't outsend God's ability to accomplish what it is that He wants to accomplish in the church. <laughs> I'm confident in Paul's words in Ephesians 1 that we looked at just a few weeks ago in chapter 1 when he says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us and all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. And get this, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. God's plan to unite all things 
in Christ is a plan from the fullness of time that this will be accomplished. The things that God wants to accomplish in heaven and the things that God wants to accomplish on this earth will be accomplished in Christ Jesus. And that is my confidence. As we close our time in Nehemiah this morning, I would like to take some time to share my vision for Spring Hill Church. As you know, when we open the service each Lord's Day, we announce this, that we exist to ascribe glory to God, to worship the triune God, who has by grace and in His Word revealed Himself to us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, this vision for the church and my personal passion comes from the Word of God, and specifically from Titus 1. I have a desire to partner with a team of elders to serve the Lord Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. In other words, I don't want you to just be knowers of the Word and have good theology and have knowledge in your head. It is that I desire as a shepherd, as a pastor in God's church, that I would proclaim the truth in you and that the Holy Spirit of God would bring about an obedience to the faith. We desire to be a church of born-again believers. Born-again believers who pursue personal holiness. That who has a desire for their own holiness, but also for the holiness of their brothers and sisters. And that in doing so, we do this through a continual and constant effort and keeping things in a simple and biblical way. In other words, we desire to be an Acts 2.42 church. A church that is constantly and consistently guided and invested personally in the Apostles' Doctrine. That is, that we are people about the book. We are people of the Word of God. We desire to be a church that is consistently obedient together. A church that rejoices together. A church that mourns together. A church that worships together. Constantly and consistently remembering our Lord Jesus Christ and His atoning death for us. And constantly and consistently remembering that Jesus Christ's atoning death is for our brothers and our sisters. And we do so through engaging in communion together and through the sharing of our lives one with another. We desire to be a body of believers that understands that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and to the glory of God alone. You know, when we get that salvation is a work of God and it is God's work to His glory, that it comes by His grace, by His unmerited, undeserved, personal favor towards us, and that He gives us the gift of faith, and that that faith is centrally and purposely focused in on Christ and His atoning death for sin, that and it is all only to the praise of God's glory, not to our own doing, that God is the one who gets the glory for our salvation, then we desire to be a church that falls on its face constantly in prayer. A church that declares her dependency upon God's grace, upon God's mercy in all things that we engage in. Our desire is to be a church of disciples of Jesus Christ. A church that is submitted to His Lordship. A church that is committed to His teachings. We desire to be a church where the disciples of Jesus are committed to proclaiming the good news of Jesus in every sphere of influence that the Lord has them. That we are desirous and engaged in making disciples of all nations. We desire that this disciple-making doesn't just happen outside of the church, but it continues within the assembled body 
as well. We desire that our members are discipling one another, in other words. That we are meeting with one another and encouraging one another to grow in faith and in obedience to the Word of God. That we are a church that encourages one another to observe all that Jesus commands Monday through Sunday. That we might then reach full maturity in Christ, to full manhood, to the head that is into Christ as we are growing into Him. We desire to be a church body that also functions properly where each body part, each person in the body does the work that they are called to, that we walk worthy of our calling, that we walk in worthiness, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ and building up the whole body so that we might grow in love and in the saving knowledge of the grace of God that is in the person of Jesus Christ. And we do this all to the praise of the glory of God. So I ask you this morning, will you commit to these six things I'm about to bring about? Will you commit to assembling together regularly? That is, continuing steadfastly in the Apostles' doctrine, continuing steadfastly in fellowship, continuing steadfastly in the remembrance of the atoning death of Christ in the sharing of our lives together, consistently going to communion together, constantly declaring your dependence and our dependence upon God through faithful and consistent prayer. Will you continue to protect and guard the gospel of Jesus Christ and commit to protecting and guarding the gospel of Jesus Christ both in word and in deed? Will you commit to receiving born-again believers into fellowship and commit to rejecting those who claim the gospel but are bearing false false witness that are refusing to live a life of repentance? Will you commit to loving one another biblically? Will you commit to being concerned with others' spiritual good? Will you commit to outdoing one another and doing good for one another? Will you commit to speaking the truth in love? Will you be those who support, encourage, and submit to those who by example and by God's grace, are charged with the care of your soul, that is, the elders in your church, will you commit to submitting to those who lead by example in God's grace, and they are charged with the care of your soul? Will you support them? Will you encourage them? Will you submit to them? And six, will you commit to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ wherever the Lord has you? If you can imagine a church like this, there is much work that needs to be done. And here's this, the Lord has chosen you to do it. What do I offer you? I offer you only blood, toil, tears, and sweat. I offer you and promise you persecution. I offer you all of that. And But what is our aim? Here's the worthiness of the task that we are called to. What is our aim? The glory of God. The glory of God at all costs. The glory of God, however long and however hard the road may be. Remember, when we began this study in chapter 1, that you are a leader wherever you are at. You are to lead others in faith to Jesus Christ. That you are to lead in the building of Christ's body. In the building up of one another. And the only thing that is holding you back is an unwillingness to do the hard work necessary to make it happen. Will you commit to the hard work? 
This morning I want to leave you with the words of Charles Spurgeon. Let us ask that the scripture we have read and our devotional exercises may not be an empty formality, but a channel of grace to our souls. Well, Father God, we praise and thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask, Lord, for your grace to enable us. We ask, Lord, that we would come alongside your will, that we would pray that your will be done, that you would make our hearts willing to do the hard work necessary to build your church, that you provide the means for your uh, accomplishments, Lord, and that you accomplish your work through your people. So, Lord, make us willing. Make us willing to do the hard work. Make us willing to commit to that hard work. Make us willing to commit to all of the things that we have discussed this morning. And may you be brought glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen.